A specter is haunting Europe. The specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where is the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against the more advanced opposition parties as well as against its reactionary adversaries? Two things result from this fact. One, communism is already acknowledged by all European powers to be itself a power. Two, it is high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of the specter of communism with a manifesto of the party itself. These are the opening lines to one of the most explosive and consequential pamphlets ever produced, the Communist Manifesto. Written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and published in 1848, it was a call to action, a rallying cry for the working class to take action against the exploitation of capitalism. A century after its publication, over one-third of the world's population would be ruled by men who espoused communist beliefs. In particular, one of the many offshoots of communist ideology, Marxism-Leninism. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we're doing things a bit differently. In this special one-part episode, we're going to give you a crash course in Marxism-Leninism and the contributions made by Mao Zedong and Che Guevara. Marxism is a complex and ever-evolving ideology. One episode wouldn't nearly do the subject justice. However, since we've explored the lives of several communist dictators, we felt it might be useful to explore the basics of their ideology. To be clear, we're not endorsing any of the ideas in today's podcast. We're just going to explain their history. We hope you come away with an understanding of where these ideas originated and how, in almost two centuries, the ideology has evolved, for better or worse. We'll chronicle the specter of communism coming up. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? 
Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Karl Marx didn't invent the concept of socialism. The idea of a stateless, classless society can be traced to the 16th century novel Utopia. Written by the English philosopher Sir Thomas More, Utopia envisioned an agrarian society free of wealth and private property, one in which people worked and lived by what was needed. There wasn't a hierarchical class system. Everyone was equal under the law. Marx's contribution to modern socialism, however, could best be described by the following quote by Vladimir Lenin. Lenin wrote that Marx combined the three main ideological currents of the 19th century, classical German philosophy, classical English political economy, and French socialism combined with French revolutionary doctrines in general. So let's look at these influences one by one starting with German philosophy. As a young university student, Marx was fascinated by philosophy. And at the time, perhaps no German philosopher was more popular than Georg Hegel. One of Hegel's key contributions was his interpretation of a concept called dialectics, a type of reasoning in which a debate or argument between two opposing ideas leads to a truth similar to the Socratic method. As historian Pamela D. Toller summarizes, put simply, the conflict between two opposing views results in change. This method of reasoning led Hegel to believe that everything in life is not only changing, but full of contradictions. Or, as he said, contradiction is at the root of all movement and life. Thus, Contradictions within a society would lead to the destruction of the old ways and the creation of something new. But Hegel was a man of the Enlightenment. He was more concerned with the freedom of ideas as opposed to economic freedom. Not long after Hegel's death in 1831, this position was challenged by one of his young followers, Karl Marx. From Marx's point of view, History isn't a battle for ideas, but a battle for survival. The development of human society has always been rooted in a struggle against our material conditions. From the very beginning of time, what separated humans from animals was our ability to use tools to produce beyond our immediate need. We are able to harness nature and bend it to our needs. And through Marx's lens, this need to produce is the main force that shapes the growth of human society. This became one of the key foundations of Marx's ideology, historical materialism. To put it simply, historical materialism looks at history as a series of class struggles within different economic structures. Marx identified four stages in historical development. First was primitive hunter-gatherer societies. Second was the slave societies of ancient Greece and Rome, 
third was feudalism, and finally, our current state, capitalism. The differences between these stages is the mode of production, the way a society's production of goods is structured. This includes everything from labor to materials to the tools and skills that are necessary. Marx argued that as development continues, there will always be a conflict between the mode of production and the people working within that system. This conflict leads to revolution and the creation of a new mode of production. Marx believed that the next mode of production to follow capitalism was communism, which brings us to the next major influence on Marx, French Socialism. Modern socialism as we know it emerged after 50 years of political turmoil in France. In the 1780s, French society was broken up into three classes, nobility, clergy, and commoners. And for someone born a commoner, social advancement was practically impossible. The ethos of the French Revolution was liberty, equality, and fraternity. Power was supposed to go more towards the people. Instead, after the revolution, only a select few actually gained a say in how society ran, the bourgeoisie or the middle-class capitalists. In response, there was an early incarnation of socialist philosophy. Of course, each of the main thinkers had different visions for what a post-capitalist society would look like. A system of communes, a cooperative commonwealth ruled by a scientific elite, an economy totally run by the state. Influenced by these theories, Marx came up with his own vision of a post-capitalist society. He ultimately described a two-step process. The first phase was socialism, which involved a temporary dictatorship of the proletariat. During the stage of socialism, the state would seize control of the means of production, abolish private property, enact free education, and enforce the principle to each according to his contribution. This last phrase is essentially a holdover of capitalism in which wages are paid based on the difficulty and productivity of a worker's labor. Eventually, socialism gives way to the second phase, communism. Based on the high productive turnout during the socialism phase, there would be an abundance of resources and goods enough for everyone to live on equally. This new society would ultimately end up becoming stateless and classless. The driving principle would be from each according to his capacities to each according to his needs, a phrase Marx borrowed from French socialist Louis Blanc. There would be total equality among everyone and no state apparatus dictating their lives. Of course, the question is, how do we get there? How does one bring about this perfect communist society? Here is where Marx separated from the French socialists, whom he later called utopian socialists. All of the thinkers before him were stuck in an enlightenment mindset, like Hegel. Most of them believed that change comes about through the spreading of ideas. Instead of a class struggle, people would simply volunteer to start living this better life. Marx believed this was ludicrous. Drawing upon his idea of historical materialism, Marx argued that history had already shown that class struggle was the key to bringing about revolution. 
As he writes in the Communist Manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed. Under capitalism, the oppressors and oppressed are the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the capitalist and the laborer, which brings us to the third major influence for Marx, British political economy. Marx was an avid reader and studied the economic theories of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and John Stuart Mill. Based on his analysis of their work, Marx believed that capitalism was full of contradictions and that these contradictions would eventually result in class struggle and the fall of capitalism. A crucial part of this impending struggle is the concept of surplus value. In the past, the production of goods was based on needs and survival. Under capitalism, it was about profit, accumulating as much wealth as possible. And according to Marx, the people who reap the rewards from that profit are the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie own the raw materials, the tools, and the factories necessary for production. So the proletariat have no choice but to sell their labor to the bourgeoisie in exchange for wages in order to survive. Wages are supposed to be based on several factors, the cost of production, the cost of survival, and the time it takes to produce. But time is abstract. For example, say a laborer works at a bakery and is hired to work eight hours, but he bakes enough bread for the day in only four hours. Obviously, he's not allowed to leave. He's still got four more hours on the clock. So he keeps baking. The wealth generated by the extra bread that's baked in the next four hours is called surplus value. And that wealth goes back to the bakery's owner, who uses it to invest in more tools, materials, and technology, which in turn allows the bakers to produce even more. And here is where Marx highlights the contradictions of capitalism. Inevitably, a crisis emerges, overproduction. Businesses produce too much, and the proletariat either doesn't need it or can't afford it. This will hurt profits and lead to a downward spiral. Weak businesses and banks go bust. Unemployment rises, and while the strong, victorious businesses manage to hoard profits by squeezing out their competition, it's not enough to prevent a recession or a depression. Even in the modern day, we see this cycle play out every few years. The economy eventually recovers. Adjustments are made, the victorious capitalists invest their capital into new industries, and the unemployed go back to work. But what remains is the antagonism between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And Marx argued that each new economic crisis would intensify the class struggle until it came to the point of a change, from capitalism to communism. At its core, Marxism argues that just like every economic system of the past, capitalism is doomed to fail. Its inherent contradictions will usher in communism. But if Marx espoused a vision of equality, a stateless, classless society free of exploitation, 
how did we get dictators like Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong, who claimed to be Marxists? For that, we have to travel to Russia and explore the ill-coined phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat. Coming up, Lenin goes to war with Karl Kautsky and the revisionists. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the show. Marxism is an ever-evolving ideology. Even Marx himself, over the course of 30-plus years, changed his ideas as the world changed around him. But Marx believed that humans must be active in affecting change. Socialism wouldn't materialize just because people saw it as morally right. It wouldn't come through propaganda alone. In Thesis on Feuerbach, Marx writes, The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change. His conclusion was the working-class proletariat couldn't just sit around and wait for the revolution. They had to be proactive. Unfortunately, not all of Marx's disciples agreed. Chief among his critics were Karl Kautsky and Edward Bernstein. Throughout the late 1800s, socialist and communist parties sprung up all over Europe. The most powerful was the German Social Democratic Party, led by Karl Kautsky. After Marx's death in 1883, Kautsky was regarded as the authority on Marxist ideology. He even earned the nickname the Pope of Marxism. But Kautsky had what political theorist and historian Alex Kalinikos called a sort of do-nothing approach. Kautsky believed that the collapse of capitalism was inevitable and that socialists should just wait around and let it happen. Meanwhile, theorist Edward Bernstein believed that socialism would emerge through political cooperation between the proletariat, the peasants, and even small business owners. The reason he came to this conclusion is because by the 1890s, working conditions had slowly improved in Europe and the United States. In particular, the rise of trade unionism, an increase in state welfare and democracy, and a rising standard of living made him believe that class struggle was unnecessary. This deviation from Marxism ultimately became known as social democracy but it would pejoratively be called revisionism. And one of the most influential enemies of revisionism was Vladimir Lenin. Lenin, as we discussed in our previous episodes, 
was of the belief that it was important to be active in changing history. However, Lenin differed from Marx regarding who should take that action. Marx believed that the revolution would occur from the ground up, that the working class would emancipate itself. And for the briefest of moments, Marx was right. In 1871, a group of frustrated Parisian workers overthrew the government and set up their own administration, the Paris Commune. Though it only lasted two months, as Marx watched events unfold, he described the movement as the first proletarian revolution in history. Naturally, it was brutally suppressed and overthrown by the French army. Tens of thousands of so-called communards were murdered in the struggle, and it became a rallying cry for socialists everywhere. Except, in the decades that followed, no working-class revolution followed the commune's lead. Instead, capitalism strengthened as imperialism flourished throughout the world. And as Lenin furthered his Marxist education, he came to this conclusion. The working class will never emancipate itself. Yet trade unions have the power to help force better wages and working conditions. But at the end of the day, unions will not overthrow capitalism and will not turn workers into socialists. Instead, what is needed is the vanguard party. Because the state does the bidding of the bourgeoisie, any attempt by the working class to overthrow capitalism will automatically be suppressed. Instead, Lenin argued that the only way to incite a revolution was with a single organization made up of dedicated revolutionaries fighting on behalf of the proletariat. The Vanguard Party would be organized as a hierarchy of democratically elected delegates. When matters were brought for argument, everyone would have a say. However, once the matter is put to a vote, the majority opinion wins, and the minority has to remain loyal to the outcome. After the revolution, the Vanguard Party would then form a temporary revolutionary government that would usher in socialism, effectively a dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, when Marx described a dictatorship, he was referring to the ancient Roman definition of the term. During the Roman Republic, a magistrate was given total authority for six months during times of crisis. But this authority was temporary. And temporary power was what Marx had in mind when he described the dictatorship of the proletariat. Marx argued that the new revolutionary state was simply a transitional body to usher in the stateless, classless society. As Lenin wrote in his 1917 manuscript, State and Revolution, the proletariat needs state power, a centralized organization of force, an organization of violence, both to crush the resistance of the exploiters and to lead the enormous mass of the population, the peasants, the petty bourgeoisie, and semi-proletarians in the work of organizing a socialist economy. In other words, once the dictatorship came to power, violence was going to be necessary to end the bourgeoisie and stop counter-revolutionaries. However, it wouldn't be permanent. The more power the proletariat gained, violent suppression would no longer be necessary. At that point, eventually the state would wither away and lead to true democracy. 
State and Revolution draws heavily on the historical examples of the failed revolutions of 1848, as well as the violently overthrown Paris Commune. For Lenin, the Paris Commune was a shining example of what a proletarian revolution should be. But he had to make sure the next revolution didn't die so quickly at the hands of the bourgeoisie. It's easy to see how critics of Marx and Lenin claim that their theories lead to totalitarianism. It also doesn't help that the man who took up the mantle after Lenin was Joseph Stalin. And as Stalin was consolidating power in the Soviet Union, he codified the ideology that we now know as Marxism-Leninism. The term Leninism was never used by Lenin himself. The school of thought that he and his comrades shaped was called Bolshevism. However, after Lenin's death, there was a split among the Bolsheviks. Those who followed the Soviet model under Stalin eventually became Marxist-Leninists. And ironically, Stalin's ideas were often directly opposed to Lenin's. Lenin had believed that a worldwide socialist revolution wasn't only necessary, it was possible. This was because, compared to other countries, Imperial Russia was behind in its capitalist development. If a country like Russia could fall to a proletarian revolution at this early stage, any country could. However, Stalin came to envision the opposite. In the wake of the Russian Revolution and Lenin's death, socialist revolutions failed to materialize in Europe. This led Stalin to the concept of socialism in one country, a focus on strengthening the Soviet Union first and then dealing with the rest of the world later. To Stalin's critics, this was a slap in the face to Lenin, who believed in global revolution. But more than that, it coincided with Stalin's other contribution to Marxist theory, aggravation of the class struggle. In Stalin's view, class struggle did not end once the socialists took power. Instead, the closer a society moves towards socialism, an increase in struggle by the capitalists will take place as they try to grasp at the final remnants of their power. As such, there was a possibility of the bourgeoisie infiltrating the party and trying to undermine socialism. This idea, of course, led to the justification for Stalin's purges in the 1930s. To Stalin's critics, however, this was an example of how he was abusing Marxism for his own personal power. Regardless, as the Soviet Union became a superpower and Stalin a world leader, Marxism-Leninism became the de facto policy of major communist regimes worldwide. It was important that as communism spread throughout the globe, it adhered to the Soviet form. Of course, just because the Kremlin demanded that Marxist revolutionaries follow their path didn't mean there weren't other theorists. And throughout the 20th century, revolutionaries like Mao Zedong and Che Guevara added their own contributions to Marxism-Leninism. Coming up, we explore Maoism and Guevarism. Now, back to the show. During Joseph Stalin's early reign in the Soviet Union, he formalized the official state ideology of Marxism-Leninism. And as the Soviet Union increasingly became a world superpower, 
Marxism-Leninism became the de facto ideology for any revolutionary who wanted to establish communism at home. During Lenin's life, he advocated for the USSR to promote colonial liberation in underdeveloped countries. If a so-called backward nation like Russia could overthrow capitalism, wasn't it possible for other countries to do the same? It makes sense, then, why nations like China and Cuba cultivated Marxist revolutionaries. However, even if they declared themselves in favor of Marxism-Leninism, some leaders had theories of their own. And two of the most influential were Mao Zedong and Che Guevara. In our episodes on Mao Zedong, we briefly discussed some of the theories he formulated during his time fighting the Chinese nationalists and the Japanese. The basis of Maoism relates to who is responsible for leading the vanguard party. Traditionally, it was the proletariat, the urban working class. However, Mao argued that the rural peasants would and should be the leaders of the vanguard party. Mao grew up among the peasants in China's countryside, and he knew that historically the peasants were responsible for most uprisings. With this in mind, Mao came to believe that the only way for the peasants to win the revolution was through a protracted people's war. In China, the communists were already engaged in struggles against both the nationalists and the Japanese. So Mao's strategy drew on this experience, specifically with guerrilla warfare. Mao believed that everyone could and should be a soldier. He desired to have his men move among the people like fish in water, mobilizing the masses and setting up guerrilla units throughout the countryside. This, in turn, allowed the communist peasants to surround cities. When Mao put this strategy into practice, it worked. It not only helped expel the Japanese from China, but also solidified their swift victory over the Nationalist Party shortly after. Mao's belief in guerrilla warfare was shared by another Marxist revolutionary on the other side of the globe, Che Guevara. Che developed his theory throughout the Cuban Revolution when he worked alongside Fidel Castro to take down Cuba's dictator, Fulgencio Batista. Che's contribution is focused mostly on how the socialist revolution should work in Latin America. Like Mao, Che believed in guerrilla warfare and the People's War with one small difference. Traditionally, Marxism has always assumed that certain economic conditions would dictate when the revolution occurred. But Che argued that those weren't necessary, and in fact, a guerrilla insurrection could create those conditions. This guerrilla insurrection is known as a foco, or focus. In Che's view, the guerrilla forces should be made up of both the peasants and the working class. Neither leads over the other, they work in tandem. The basic idea is that these small groups of dedicated freedom fighters would establish bases throughout various regions, gain political and military influence, and incite small doses of revolution. Che argued that in the urban areas, revolutionary forces would inevitably be crushed by a regular army. However, with the foco in the countryside, the spirit of revolution would be able to live on. As political scientist Samuel Farber notes, a foco could play an important psychological role as a beacon of hope, 
showing that the army and the government are not invincible and can be defeated. Che's second major contribution to Marxist theory was his idea of the new man, what a person would look like once communism truly takes hold. He formulated the idea based on his experiences in Cuba. As summarized by Samuel Farber, Che's new man is a selfless and idealistic man infused with the values and practices of heroism dedicated to the good of society. Taking a humanist approach to Marxism, Che believed that individual fulfillment would blossom from working together for the collective good of society. In Che's words, the result is that individuals start to see themselves reflected in their work and to understand their full stature as human beings through the object created, through the work accomplished. Work no longer entails surrendering a part of one's being in the form of labor power sold. According to Che, once this new moral conscience is developed, humans will no longer be viewed as commodities. The new man and new woman will work voluntarily for the sake of fulfillment instead of wages. Ironically, Che's descriptions of the new man sound utopian, especially since he doesn't explicitly articulate how or when the new man will arrive. This kind of idealism, we know, was exactly what Karl Marx was trying to avoid through his scientific and historical analysis. There is much more to Marxism and Marxism-Leninism than we've discussed today. Ever since Marx and Engels first set out to find a scientific approach to socialism, thinkers from around the globe have contributed to expanding, correcting, and adapting their theories to cater to different times and places. Listeners can form their own opinions as to whether or not Marxism is a useful method to analyze history and current events. And although we can't ignore the heinous reigns of dictators under the Marxist-Leninist banner, we also must end on this question. When Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1847, did they ever envision it would lead to brutal authoritarianism? Or did they simply want working men of the world to unite and cast off their chains? Thanks for listening to this special episode of Dictators. Next week, begin our new season diving into the lives of tyrannical leaders in days leading up to and through World War I. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>